like to hear the puppeteers cheers and play the characters that you cheer. So join us as we go, 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 below the frame. On this episode of Below the Frame, we're going to be speaking with Sesame Street Muppet performer Jennifer Barnhart. Jen talks about a bout of stage fright when she was a young performer, uh, getting her first laugh on stage, and how much time she spent in bars when she was 10 years old. We'll also be talking a bit about bold characters, so take a deep breath and go for it. It's time to go Below the Frame. Go, go, go Below the Frame. Welcome to Below the Frame. This is the place for fans of Sesame Street and the Muppets to get your fix of behind-the-scenes stuff and to learn about the people that make the Sesame Street and Disney Muppet characters tick. My name is Matt Vogel. I play Big Bird and Kermit the Frog and The Count and Floyd Pepper and Uncle Deadly and a bunch of others, and I'm your host. And on this episode of Below the Frame, we are going to be hearing from Jennifer Barnhart. You know, Jen is, uh, she's so great. She's warm. She's congenial. She just, she brings uh, like a real grounded feeling to our Sesame Street Muppet performers. And you're going to see what I mean here in a minute. She uh, she plays Zoe on Sesame Street, of course. And uh, she now plays Granny Bird. And she's played Snuffy's mom. And we haven't seen that character in a little while. But uh, she also plays Maggie Cadabby and a bunch of others. And she's also one of the very few left-handed Muppet performers. So that's, that's kind of fancy. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? Of course you are. That's why you're listening. So let's go below the frame. Hey, Jennifer Barnhart, how you doing? I'm doing well, Matt Vogel. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for sitting down and speaking with me on Below the Frame. I really appreciate it. Uh, now, can I call you Jen? Of course, yes. Yeah, you know, if Mr. Johnson, Fat Blue, were here, he would call you Jenny. Yes, because Mr. Johnson is allowed to do that. Not a lot of people <laughs> call me Jenny, but Mr. Johnson is allowed to do that. Jenny! See? He just, he doesn't care. <laughs> Where's Jenny? Yeah. And it always uh, tickles me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to call you Jen, but your professional name is Jennifer. Yes, it is. This is very right. true. But uh, no one ever calls me Jennifer. Very few people do. Um, and I think Does in retrospect... Does anybody call you Jennifer? Who, uh, a handful. Call, anybody? Uh, my best friend, Karen, calls me Jennifer. Okay. And... Um, Wow, I think she's really the only one who consistently <laughs> calls me Jennifer. That's there are it. other people okay. who do occasionally, but for the most part, it's just her. The reason I did it, it's a, it's a shame because Jen Barnhart scans real well. But, oh, yeah. Uh, I think somebody had convinced me when I was first joining the union, no, 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 you want as much real estate as you can have. So you want your full <laughs> Jennifer right. Barnhart, Martin right. P. Robinson, Timothy J. Yep. Legasse. I mean, these were the people uh-huh. that I first worked with. So I was like, oh. I better use all the letters. I use everything. <laughs> but you didn't go with a middle name. Mm-mm. No, I did not. Because for not. a while, I was a Matthew James Vogel. <gasps> I was all three. But this is not about me. This is about you. And I would like you to tell me a little bit about growing up. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in um, <clears throat> Hamden, Connecticut, which is just north of New Haven. And I grew up, uh, I have a very musical older brother. He, he's five years older than me, and he was the musical prodigy of the family. My, my mom and dad were not terribly artistically inclined, but my brother kind of paved the way by being this musician who fell in love with the music of traditional Dixieland and ragtime and jazz. And uh, so he sort of opened the door to be like, hey, I'm kind of a wacky artistic kid. And so when I came along, they were like, oh, okay, what, what's your thing? And I thought, well... <laughs> I enjoyed music, but when I saw how good he was, I thought, oh, that's going to be his thing. 
I'm not even gonna... you are you're you're pretty musical. I, I would say. Thank you. I'm I'm fairly musical. It's true. But you my, can sing. You can read music, right? I can do both of those things. But I that truly is a language that I learned at my brother's knee, because he was doing four part vocal arrangements for harmonies by the time he was fourteen, oh and I was nine. Wow. And he would say to me, he would say, come here, come over to the piano and, and I'm, I'm going to sing you something. I need to hear how these two lines sound together. So I'm going to sing you something. So sing it back to me. And I would sing it back to him. And he'd say, okay, now you sing that. I'm going to sing something different. And I would start to follow him. And he'd go, no, sing the thing I just sang for you. And so he was teaching me to hear harmonies. And he was teaching me rudimentary music theory without either of us knowing that that's what was happening. And, and I think of music as a language and how kids are such sponges and they soak up information. So I learned the music of life or the language of music rather uh, at, at sort of an early age because of him. So I remember so you're like was, nine or 10 years old when he was telling you to, you know, come over here and sing this part. Absolutely. And so the terrible thing is I would get to my school choir class and there'd be kids who couldn't carry a tune. And I'd look at them like, what is wrong with you? How do you not know how to do <laughs> <Yeah>. this? <laughs> so that's awkward. Yeah. Well, what, what other kind of things did you do as a kid? Oh, I, I actually really dug sports. I was very athletic. My brother was not as athletically minded, and I was. But I never really played a lot of team sports. I think as far in organized sports as I ever got was t-ball uh, when yeah. I was around 10 or 11, something something in there, maybe a little younger. That was, the, that was as far as you went? That was as far as I went, because after that, I started getting involved in the band when I was in elementary school. And this is... So silly, but my older brother played trombone and he was the only trombone player in the school and he was five years older than me and he graduated. And the music teacher, who also was a trombone player, Mr. Carl Forbes, uh, he said to me, hey, you want to play trombone just like your brother, don't you? And I was like, <laughs> oh, gosh, OK, sure, I guess. Why not? He's like, well, because we, we don't have a lower brass section. So so now you're it. Uh, that was what I started doing band. And so I was a band kid and did all the marching band and the jazz band and the dance band and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of my segue into, oh, I wasn't playing the team sports. I was playing in the pep band or marching band at the team sports. Were you doing any other kind of things in school other than, you know, playing playing music? Were you getting into the arts in other ways? When I was really little, I really loved drawing and, and I sort of got away from being a any sort of visual artist. Um, and I've been slowly trying to reawaken that more as a meditative thing, more as a thing to make me relax. I don't really show anybody any of the stuff that I do, but mm -hmm. uh, I enjoy doing it for myself. And um, I did start uh, acting when I was 13. I was, <laughs> I was cast in a Once Upon a Mattress. I played the villainess and the queen mother, Queen Agravain. And that began an entire career of playing older women, women of influence, villainesses, <laughs> mothers. Yes, yes. But when you were cast in this role and you were performing, were you thinking, oh, this is what I want to be doing? Well, I actually was struck with terrible stage fright. And I should say, before I did Queen Agravain, when I was in third grade, the little, the little mini school musical that we did was Oliver, and mm -hmm. I was Fagin. Oh. Because at the age of eight, <laughs> I was the only one who could sing notes that low. 
Yeah. Because I've All always right. had this deep voice. Uh, in, in home <laughs> movies where my fa- brother, five years older than me, and I are talking to each yeah. other, even when I'm five or six, my voice is deeper than his. <laughs> be, that's fun to imagine that. Yeah. A little Jen. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a clip sometime. <laughs> that is funny. But I was, I was struck with horrible stage fright before the first performance. I remembered sitting behind, and, and this was, of course, because it was an old-fashioned kind of musical, there was an actual overture. So the overture is playing, the curtain's down, and I am sitting on my throne, hyperventilating. And everyone is coming around and like, Jen is freaking out. Jen is freaking out right now. And I remember seeing uh, right at the bottom of the stage, right at the hem of the curtain line, I remember seeing it start to rise and seeing that little oh. bit of light and that light happened and something happened and I just snapped up and I was, I was fine. Wow. I was fine from that moment on, which was weird. Uh, did you ever have any bouts of stage fright since? Um, you know, because we all kind of go through that. There are times when we might go through any kind of stage fright, anything that's happened to you that you, that, that. Absolutely. Um, well, let's see. It's it usually is surrounded by uh, who's in the audience for me. If it's somebody whose opinion I really care about, you know, I always get the sort of nervous, jittery excitement about performing. Yeah, but that's good. That's the good kind of stuff. Yeah, the, but one the, time the, the, <laughs> the stuff that kind of you seize up and you can't move or talk or think. Yeah, that's that's the not so good part. Um, that's not good. And I've never I've never been stricken quite to that extent again. I think it was, and and I think perhaps at some point during that first performance, getting my first laugh or hearing applause for the first time and thinking, oh, this this is pretty fun. Yeah. But these were also things that I had witnessed my uh, brother doing because the other thing is that when I was growing up. My brother, who was five years older than me, was so good at piano playing. It's all he wanted to do. And we would go to see this live jazz band near us, the Galvanized Jazz Band, which is the best name for a traditional Dixieland band ever. <laughs> and it was my first time seeing live music without sheet or live performance, live music and performance without people reading charts or sheet music. Someone would just call out a name of a song, call out a key, and they'd go. Wow. And and I grew up watching this. And my brother, they knew my brother was into this kind of music. So they would say, oh, you know, we're going to take our five-minute break, and here's little Jeffrey Barnhart. He's going to come up, and he's going to play a song or two. And they let him play during their break. And then they would say, oh, Jeff's playing. You know what? Play this next song with us. And they'd let him sort of play a song or two into their set. And at that point, he was hooked. So That's amazing. My mother, by this point in time, uh, my folks had split up, and it was my mom and me and my brother. And my mom knew that my brother really wanted to do this. And there was a place where we would go, another place, I think it was, was it the Yankee Silversmith Inn? That's what it was. And we, there was a little jazz trio that played there. And one of them said, hey, Jeff, you know, did you want to fill in? And my brother started gigging there. Now, he at the time was 15 and I was 10. And my mother had to chaperone him because it's a piano bar. There is alcohol. So she is chaperoning him and bringing him. And we couldn't afford a babysitter. So I just slept along. And I did not think at all about the fact that here I was, a kid in a very adult environment, because I really was the only kid. All I cared about was the free popcorn and bottomless Shirley Temples. And I was fine. <laughs> and I'm listening to and learning all of this music. So uh, seeing my brother work a room, I mean, who I am as a performer, so much of that was watching my brother figure it out in front of a crowd of people who were drinking <laughs> when he was a teenager. <laughs> he figured it out. 
And, he was and, figuring it out, and you were watching him and absorbing it. Yep, like a sponge. Yep, yep. So any any full sense of Shirley of Temples. Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. And singing along very loudly, um, I, I, which reminds me, oddly, jumping completely to something unrelated, when we were shooting Helpsters last year, uh, mm-hmm. we had Danny Trejo on, which was incredible. Yes. And we, there's the big orange character named Heart, and Danny Trejo started singing to Heart. Heart of my heart, I love that melody. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Heart of my heart brings back those memories. Remember when we were kids? Come on, people. On the corner, <laughs> anyone? on the street. Anyone? anyone? And, and even Danny Trejo was looking at me like, who are you? What? What? I don't even know the rest of this song. What are you talking about? <laughs> so... It, it means that I am full of uh, knowledge about music that no one else knows from the early 1900s. So. That will serve you well someday. It will. Don't know right? how. Fingers well, crossed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, but it will because it's everything that we learn and everything that we kind of hold inside is going to be useful in some way someday. I think. This is very true. So you're going and watching your brother play in bars and you're absorbing all of this and you've done uh, some performing yourself. At what point did you go, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go, I want to be, I mean, because you, you wanted to be an actor or was, was there any puppetry in your life at this point? At this point, yes. I was a huge Muppet Show fan club kid. I loved the Muppet Show. <laughs> I had all the buttons and badges and the newsletters and read it all and devoured it all. Read about all the performers. Um, and I remembered seeing the Dark Crystal in the movie theater. I was just the right age to see it and, and be wowed by it and go, wow, wait a minute. The Muppets make me laugh. But puppets can do that. I want to do that, and that was. So you did, you weren't even thinking I'm going to be an actor. You were thinking I want to do. Well, I want to work with those guys. Or I fantasized about it, but I never thought concretely about how one would actually make that happen. So as right. I only ever gutted my own stuffed animals and sort of used them as puppets to do little shows for my family. Uh, mm-hmm. That was as far as I'd gotten in, in terms of exploring it, and then. By the time I was in junior high and high school, at that point, between the music department and the theater department, I was booked solid and didn't really think about anything. Um, I would race from one rehearsal to the other throughout my entire high school career. I never got to be in any of the musicals in high school because they didn't have a lower brass section if I wasn't there playing trombone in the pit. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Yeah, so I played in the pit orchestra of all the shows. Um, but oh, I got boy. to be in all of the um, non-musical shows that we did. So we did things like Amadeus and The Shadow Box, which is a play about terminal illness. I was I was 15 Jeez, years this old. Was, this is dark, <laughs> dark high school choices. It's because we had a theater department. We didn't have a theater club. I actually got to take accredited classes in theater. So I took a Shakespeare class for credit which was amazing. And I think it was, it really was, I believe, in high school and doing shows at that level. When we were doing, when we did the Shadow Box as research, our high school teacher, director, took us to a hospice facility to meet with the staff and to take a tour of the facility and get to actually talk to some family members and some residents. And that was you know, on, on the bus, we're all very excited. We're, we're being real actors, you know. We're, we're doing our research. And, yeah. 
and and then the bus ride on the way home and the gravity of that. But thinking that that these stories were at the heart of the stories that we were trying to tell in the play, that I think was really a turning point for me in terms of pursuing it as a serious craft. So I was I was definitely in high school when when that was the case. And incidentally, that was when I first met Bruce Connolly. What? Bruce Connolly was the college roommate of my high school theater teacher. And there was a dramatic, the Connecticut Dramatic Association Festival. There was a play festival where we all did our shows and we would get notes and adjudication from different people. So one of them was from, uh, from the theater department at UConn, Bob McDonald. That was when I met him for the first time, Reston. Uh, and Bruce Connolly was there as a New York actor. And of course, here we all are. We're all high school kids going, oh, he lives in New York. He's a real actor. And he came to see the show and he was giving notes and it said, and his observations, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, and, and where's the teacher who played Felicity? Because there was an 81 year old woman in the show and I was playing her. Uh, now, of course you were. <laughs> I was partly because my uh, high school theater professor's partner was a makeup artist and put liquid latex on me and did the whole nine yards. Again, I'm 15 years old and this is happening. <laughs> So I think I started taking it so seriously because it was always treated in such a, no, this is legitimate to me through this school. So Mr. Schlossberg, Julian Schlossberg, my high school theater teacher, major props for, for shaping me into the actor that I am for sure. But so Bruce says, so where's the teacher who played Felicity? And, and I raised my hand and he's like, no, 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 stand up. And he went, no, 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 the teacher. And I said, no, it was me. It was me. And he looked at his program. He looked at me and he went, I can't even talk to you right now. I got to talk to you later. <laughs> I can't even talk to you right now. And that began our friendship uh, uh, <laughs> that Bruce many years Connelly. ago. Yes. So you're, you're in it deep. You are, you're going to be an actor. Yes. You're definitely going to be an actor. Yes. And my so mom what did do not you want do? that. My, no, wait, my, what? Your mom didn't want it. No. She, she, well, she made my brother, my bro- again, he paved the way. When he went to college, he majored in music, but she said, you have to double major in something practical. So he said, okay, English. And she said, okay, that's fine. So then when you're coming forward and saying, I'm going to go to college to be an actor. Uh-huh. She said, you have to have a practical says, double major. She said, you you just have to come right. up with a, a something else to fall back on. And at the time, uh, the University of Connecticut, where I ended up going, had a very strong physical therapy program. And so I was going to be an acting major and do a double major in physical therapy, which would have been intense. But It would have been I, intense, but it kind of makes sense for, for an actor in a way to be that aware and in touch with the human body. I think that, that does make sense, but wow, that would be tough. It would have been a lot, yeah. And as it turns out, that program actually did end up getting terminated. And I arrived there and, and went, oh, well, that's a shame. There was all this stuff in the brochures about it. What there was not... <laughs> anything in the brochures about was the puppetry program because the puppetry program had almost been killed the year before. The combined student body for all four years of undergraduate and two years of graduate, eight. There were eight Mm. students in all six grades. And they were like, 
yeah, maybe not. Uh, the professor who started the program, uh, Dr. Frank Ballard, had contracted Parkinson's disease. He had been stepping away. He had been doing a little less hands-on. So the current professor of the public arts program at UConn, uh, Bart Rockaburton, he started his first year there was actually my first year at UConn as well. So mm. I arrived and here's this new professor who's trying to galvanize the program and take it in different directions. And I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. I've always wanted to do this. Hey, hey, let me see <laughs> if I can, you know, maybe give it a shot. So that was when I... Uh, had the door opened to me that way. And the program itself did not really focus on Muppet style at all. What kind of things was it focusing on? What different styles of puppetry? Oh, I did marionettes, um, mask performance. There was shadow puppets. I took a, The only class I didn't get to take was rod puppetry, which I really would have enjoyed. But hand puppets outside of the Muppet style, more like Punch and Judy style. And are you making puppets as well as performing them? You're learning the whole, the full spectrum of of puppetry from creating them uh, to performing them and everything in between. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I I was never quite as good as at the building part as I was at the performing part. And I remembered when I actually uh, started taking classes there. Again, I'm a freshman and I go, wait, I didn't know that this was an option. Oh, but there's these classes I want to take next semester. Oh, but I was supposed to have taken prerequisites this first semester. Mm, Basic tech stuff. Oh, gosh. So I approached Bart and I said, Bart, what do I need to take your classes? And he went, what do you need? You need my signature on your form. Give it here. And I was the only freshman in my class to have gotten cast in main stage shows. The main stage shows tended to be more showcases for the grad acting students and the upperclassmen, you know, the, the juniors and seniors would get some some decent roles in that. And for the, for the most part, freshmen, you didn't even think about getting cast until your sophomore year. But I did two, I had two roles in two different shows. And Bart said, I've seen what you can do. And a lot of my students right now are very tech heavy and they don't have as much performance background. And I'm hoping that by having you come into the program, you can learn from them and they can learn from you. So um, designing and building was fun, but, but it, and, and I didn't end up actually getting the double major because it would have required me to be there for a fifth year to take all of the design classes. Uh, The program at that time, in addition to all of the other core stuff, and remember, this is a liberal arts college too, so you still have your other classes that you have to take. Now, fortunately, I had applied to be a member of the honors program, and they let me rewrite my curriculum, which was great, because I said, listen, this is the thing I want to do, but I can't really do the double major because you had to take a full year of lighting design, a full year of costume design, a full year of set design, a full year of directing, uh, all of these things because it is that comprehensive an art form. And they thought, listen, we want people to be able to do any and all aspects of this. So I took one full year of costume design and then looked at the rest of how the other uh, years were breaking down. And I went, I, I no, I'm going to run out of money. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do a fifth year. I'm going to do the best I can. So, so what'd you come out of there with? I came out of there with a BFA in acting with a concentration in puppet arts. When I told mom, I found my second thing though. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's puppetry. And she went, my taxpaying dollars are going to pay for a program in puppetry. And I said, yeah, uh... yeah, actually they are. And she went, huh, okay. And then she came to see a performance. And the first time she had seen a puppet come to life in front of her that I made happen, she just went, this is magic. No, this is really good. You you can do, this is, this is wonderful. I was like, oh, okay, cool. You had impressed her and she thought, well, that's, she's, she's doing good. 
Yeah. He's doing a good job. Yeah. That's great. Good. <laughs> well, you graduate from University of Connecticut. What year was that? That was 1994. So what do you do? What's your big plan? You got to have a big plan, right? Because <laughs> you just graduated from college. Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, my big plan was, uh, see, the thing is, my big plan then, and this does explain some things about certain aspects of my life, but my big plan has always been, I'll find out when I get there. I will walk yeah. through the open door. What's over here? Oh, this looks fun. <laughs> what can I do with this? Oh, what's that? Opportunities that present themselves to you. Yes. You uh, will take and- them. Yes, Which exactly. could be that could be a very valid way of doing things. I mean, it served you well. It certainly did. The first job I had after graduating was working for BART because BART mm-hmm. was still working professionally and doing things. And we did a blacklight puppet show at Comdex, which was a computer conference convention. In Las Vegas, it was wild, but it was working on that. Uh, it was it was ridiculous. It made absolutely no sense, but it was fun. And then it was the one low tech thing at this very high tech conference. So we actually got a lot of people coming in to see, like, what is happening in that very enclosed space? What is going on? <laughs> but uh, it was there that I met Rick Lyon, and Rick said, "Hey, you're a tall puppeteer. I need someone to help me do my live shows." So. He hired me and I started working with Rick. And it was working with him that I really learned how to be fluent in the lip sync style of the Muppet style of yeah. performance. Yeah. And what's great though is that I was doing it in a live circumstance. So we were doing it standing behind a playboard. I still had to wear big old catherni, big old platform shoes to be tall enough. And I would I was at the at that time looking up to see what I was doing, but we would videotape rehearsals. And I would watch that back and I would learn that. But so I became fluent in the Muppet style of performance without having to figure out how am I doing this for a camera? Without the monitor stuff. yeah, Yeah. I had had one class in TV monitor stuff at UConn. We did like one, one semester of that, of sort of TV production film kind of thing. And... That was, I I learned the backwards thing there. I did another small project. There was a a local public television thing that I did when I was still at UConn where that was my first time with my hand in a puppet on camera going, oh, wow, this is very hard. This is bizarre. (laughs) And I was still learning how to do just the basic lip sync and focus and, you know, all of the rudimentary stuff. All of Um, the two dozen things that you have to do when you're a Muppet performer. So I learned the lip sync part and the manipulation and the acting through a puppet. I learned that in a live situation, which was great. Mm, Yeah, I mean, what a great training ground. Uh, Jen, I'm sorry, but we have to pause for a minute. It's time for a word from our sponsor. Are your characters meek? Hi. Lifeless? (sighs) Lacking spirit and any redeeming qualities? I'm, um... I'm, uh, I'm a guy, I, I guess. If the answer is yes, then you need bold characters. Take a look at the world around you. It's filled with bold and interesting people. Good morning. Whoa. Bold and interesting animals. I'm a chicken. And bold and interesting things. <laughs> Why not bring that fearless, daring sense of confidence to your characters? Bold characters aren't meek. They're not lifeless. And they've got spirit and redeeming qualities up the wazoo. Plus, bold characters work hand in hand with your puppetry. Let's hear from an expert in bold 
What are we if we cannot grasp the conceptualization and cradle in the collective arms of our minds the notion that we can, nay, we must create daring characters? It is simply not gratifying to watch one flail helplessly circling the drain of the proverbial toilet of savorless pedestrian characterization. It is boring. I mean, come on, right? It makes sense. Think of the characters we all love. The lady pig, the weirdo, that guy who loves numbers, the fairy, the football-headed guy and his pointy-headed roommate. <laughs> Those and so many more like them are all bold characters. But what does it mean when we say intrepid and brave characters to the fore does not indicate one must merely be tumultuous and loud. No, 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 no. It means that these characters we generate must possess a sense of purpose and a unique point of view, be it an obsession with a particular dessert or the desire to present oneself with flowery words and a certain air of earned authority. Characters can be hushed minute, or even gentle, but they must be discharged by a confident player, and it does take time, lots of time. However, it is what we strive to achieve. Again, I mean, that really says it all, doesn't it? So forget those meek, lifeless characters and try... Your characters will thank you. And so will your audience. Brought to you by the Council for Bold Characters and Puppetry, or CUBCUP. Visit CUBCUP.org for more information. Cup Cup is not a real organization, and there is no Cup Cup website. <laughs> yes, that is right. Today's episode of Below the Frame is brought to you by Bold Characters. Okay, I think I know who that is. Come in. Excuse me, Dad, are you busy? Yeah, come in, Jack. Yes, I am busy. Oh, sorry, I'll go. No, 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 wait, Jack. You, you know, you're supposed to come in and, you know, you're supposed to give me a little trouble about the fake ads and stuff like that. Mm, it's kind of boring. Oh, is it? Yeah, I just came in to say hi. Oh, <laughs> really, Jack? No, I'm here to make fun of you. What are you talking about today? <laughs> Actually, Jack, uh, we're talking about bold characters. You know, if you think about any of the Sesame Street or Disney Muppet characters, the ones that you love, they're, they're all so specific and so bold, they've, they've got a unique and singular point of view. I mean, think of any of them. Think of Miss Piggy or Gonzo or, or Telly Monster, or Oscar, any, any of them, and any of those and so many, so many more. And um, that's something that we look for in, in a puppeteer, in ourselves. You know, somebody that can create and bring bold characters to life. So if you want to dig in deep with your character work, take a look at what Jim Henson and Frank Oz and, and, and Richard Hunt and Jerry Nelson and Dave Goles and Fran Brill and Carol Spinney and any of those first generation of Muppet performers. Did I forget anybody? I probably did, but you know what I mean. Look at what any of that first generation of Muppet performers did and, and, and look at, at 
at their their body of work. Any character that they've played has a point of view and, and, and an outlook on the world. They've got an, an objective. They feel real. They seem to jump out of the screen because they're so great. And that's what we, as the current Muppet performers for Sesame and Muppets, that's what we aspire to do even today, to bring bold characters to life. And so should you. So with that said, I'd like to thank Bold Characters for being a sponsor of Below the Frame. That was pretty good, Dad. Well, thanks, Jack. Nice of you to say. Well, that's the line you wrote for me to say. Okay, Jack. Bye. Bye. Below the Frame. So, we were talking with Jennifer Barnhart about how she learned basic lip sync, uh, focus, and everything that she was figuring out on the job and in live situations. But now let's get back to it. So, Jen, you gained a lot of knowledge doing these live shows with Rick Lyon, but what came of it? What, what came next? It was after that that I got the job working on a production called Once Upon a Tree, which yeah, is this for, is about 1996. Yes, very good, right? Very good, 1996. It was for a then-fledgling channel called Animal Planet, because Animal Planet was relatively new to the cable sphere at that point in time. And they wanted to do their own programming, and they had this very strange idea to do a, a program with woodland critters, pu- puppet versions of them. And we were there was a human who was sort of introducing us to real animals at the same time. So there were puppet versions of animals and actual animals in the same... It was that very weird. bizarre. And your puppet versions of the animals spoke, I'm guessing they yes. talked. Yes, in they, English, but the animals, they, they didn't, the no, real animals. <laughs> they, they clearly did not. Um, yeah, they did not. I, well, the reason I got this job, this was the other thing. Tim Legass, who I had gone to UConn with, had sent my name to the people who were doing it, and they just wanted a voice tape. They were like, just, just send us a tape of some character mm-hmm. voices that you can do. And I said, okay, don't you want to see me puppeteer? They went, ah, <laughs> Tim says you're fine. We trust him. I was like, okay. Okay, great. But uh, so Tim played a little bunny rabbit named Jasper, and I played a beaver named Mara and a doffy old owl named Mrs. Peepers. And they had shot a pilot, and I was not involved in the pilot. This is this is one of those instances when I like to tell <laughs> young people who are starting out on this that I have made a fine career out of being people's second and sometimes third choices. And I was the third choice for this role, which I found out when I went to go pick up my rental car and they'd given the name of another puppeteer. Uh (laughs) I was like, no, that wouldn't be me. And I knew who the pilot performer was and I went, no, I wasn't her either. Okay. Anyway, Uh that's fine. But uh, apparently when they were shooting the pilot, they had a bald eagle and they (laughs) had kept the eagle hooded and then they made sure everything was quiet on the set and everybody was in their positions, buried in their little troughs because it wasn't a raised set or anything we're all just rolling around and they take the hood off the eagle and the eagle looks around and spots the little bunny puppet oh no and goes right for him and starts to drag the log to which he's tethered behind him oh and tim managed to grab the puppet duck and roll under the set and and they decided to rethink that but so yeah it was a weird little show were they rolling cameras on that moment I don't I, I wasn't there that's the sad thing that, <laughs> oh, right. that's you a question there. for Tim Legas. I have oh, to ask man. I have to ask Tim yeah. that but, but, and yeah. Tim was on that show but also Jim Martin and Heather Ash yes. and, and Eric, Eric Jacobson yes that was right? the first time I met and worked with Eric and Jim and I'd, I'd known Heather and Tim because we all had been in UConn at around the same time but that was my first time working with Jim Martin and Jim Martin taught me such a 
valuable lesson. He was directing uh, episodes, and he was also the, he played my brother. There was a brother-sister beaver combo. He was Forrest, and I was Mara. And there was an episode that was very, oh, Mara was agonizing about things, and she had a couple of key scenes and a song. And we were on a very tight budget for this thing, and we would not go over. And so I had already learned by this point, oh no, give me a do or die, give me a do or die. And it was for this big scene leading into the song. And Jim said, okay, I can do this for you, but it means you will get one less pass on your song because we can't, there's only so much time in the day and we still have to shoot a song. And I was like, no, 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 I really didn't, I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't nail those acting beats. I didn't nail this. And he was like, okay. And that took longer than it should have. And by the end of it, I had one pass at that song and that was all I had. And that was all they could give me. And I was a wreck in the corner afterwards about it. I was just a mess. And Jim came over and he put an armor on my shoulder and he said, I'm sorry, I, I tried to tell you. And I said, no, you, you did tell me, you did tell me. I just, I thought I could make all of it happen all at once. I thought I could, I thought I could pull it out and, and do it in the time that we had. And so, so it was, it was a very, very valuable lesson. He was very kind and big brotherly and, you know, very decent about it all, but he could only do so much. So uh, what a lesson to learn as a young oh. puppeteer trying to figure out your way. And uh, how was uh, the monitor for you? Cause this was probably a good training ground. Oh, it was my, it was the perfect boot camp Cause it's a show that no one will ever see. I mean, you can now find <laughs> bits of it on, I, I think there's a DVD that has five uh-huh. episodes of it out there, but it was, it was great because it was my first time doing a three camera shoot with live switching and trying to figure that out. And I did actually, I remembered, I was so terrified. I was so scared before we were started filming and I reached out to Eric. I, I reached out to him and said, listen, would you, if I make you dinner, will you just come over to my apartment and work with me? Cause I need help. And there's only so much I feel like you can do by yourself with a monitor and everything, would you do it? And he said, sure, sure, sure. So he came over. He was very dear to me, very, very kind. And I remembered <laughs> after one session, right before we're about to start shooting, I just, I, I said, Eric, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm not at the level that everybody else is. No. Uh, can Is there anything, any advice you can give me, anything that I can just hang my hat on and, and, and pray for? And he said, all right you want to know what I do? I said, yes, yes, I do. He said, imagine the kind of puppeteer that you want to be. Pick a performer that you know, that you really admire, and then just start pretending to be that. And then if you do it hard enough and long enough, there's going to come a day when you're not pretending anymore. And I said, did you just tell me to fake it till I make it? (laughs) He said, yeah, I guess I did. Yeah, I guess so. Your words, not mine. Yeah, you know, but it's the gist of it. It is true what you said, though, and you were you were aware enough. I think when you called Eric and said, "Can you come and help me?" That you're right. You can only do so much on your own. At some point, if you're working for hours and hours in front of a monitor and it's just you, you're in. You're working in a vacuum, and at some point, you do need somebody to come in and challenge you to be a scene partner to to critique you because it's hard to critique yourself sometimes, especially if you're learning uh, to try to critique how you're doing. I think that was very wise of you. Very, very smart. Thank you. I was also very fortunate to be surrounded by people who were that much better than me. And so every day I'm working alongside people who gave me something to reach for. Mm -hmm. And that made me get better. So you did about 27 
episodes or something like that. That's what I. That's what my research. Is that what the tells research me. says? Interesting. Well, it says yeah, thirteen, uh, two thirteen episode seasons and a pilot. Oh, I wasn't in the pilot, so I did twenty six. So uh, basically, I took the money from Once Upon a Tree and I used it to move to New York. And I was like, hey, Sesame Street Muppets, I've arrived. And they're like, who are you? <laughs> I said, oh, I guess I better find a day job. So the first thing I did, I managed to find a roommate in Queens. And I was uh, working at first as a word processor for a law firm because I can touch type. And whenever kids ask me, so any advice for you know wanting to do it as a performer or, you know, Starting out, I said, well, uh, the, the most valuable class I ever took in my life was touch typing. And they laugh at me and I say, think about it. Would you rather wait tables for $7 an hour or would you rather be a word processor at a law firm for 17 Well, there you go. So uh, I was doing that for a while and then that was a little short-lived. And um, then I found myself working as a copywriter at an ad agency. How did this come about? How all of these things came about? Amazingly, the job, uh, the job as the law press, uh, the word processor at the law firm, the apartment in Queens, and the job at the ad agency all came because the year before I moved to New York City, I spent one summer working at the New York Renaissance Fair as an actor and a puppeteer. Rick Lyon had was doing live shows there, and I was working with him at the time, and so we, I, I was doing puppeteering and acting at this place, and I met seventy five people who lived in New York City just because they were doing the Ren Fair too. So through friends of friends of friends. And one of these friends was uh, a man named Don, who was the entire copy department at this very small little ad agency. And he said, listen, you're literate. I need an assistant. All you have to worry about is, is proofreading and copy editing. That's all you have to really worry about. I said, okay, great. However, by the end of two weeks, I was all of a sudden having a meeting with a voiceover internet protocol company telling them what I thought they should do with their corporate branding. And I was like, they're going to know I'm a sham. (laughs) He's like, no, they're not. You're an actor. You can improv. Just do it fine. So I started having clients that I was responsible for. So after a year of working at this ad agency and trying desperately to get other work as a performer, I did a production of Angels in America, where I was the angel, at the gallery players in Brooklyn. And I would do I would go to rehearsals after I did my, my day job. And I also worked at the time uh, for Viet Courgez, who is, he runs the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater Company. Interestingly enough, something else that Eric Jacobson and I share in common, we both worked for Viet at one point doing a Czech marionette show in New York City. Um, different times. At different different times. times. Yes, we didn't, we, we didn't do the same show. But I was trying to get work as a performer while I'm doing this stuff at the ad agency. Now, a bunch of friends and I, also from the New York Renaissance Fair, had gotten together. One of them had, had, had this great idea that we were going to be our own talent agency. It was called AMPM. Actors Marketing and Personal Management. And we started submitting, we would do showcases to try to get uh, casting directors to come, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We actually started doing okay, but we're all pouring our own money into this and volunteering and trying to pick up the slack and producing things. And, you know, we were scrappy and young and in New York. And finally the bottom fell out. And around this same time, my boss said, hey, believe it or not, you're up for your annual review. I said, oh God, has it been a year? I've been here for a year? (laughs) He said, yeah, and uh, here's what I can do. I can get you probably about $10,000 more a year 
And I went, oh, great. Because this was a salary. You know, this was a salary job. I had vacation. I had health benefits. And he said, but the only problem is you would, the only trade-off is you would have to give up your flexibility. So think about it. Yeah. And I so was, you'd been doing auditions. You'd been trying, you'd been out there trying to, to get other jobs, the things that you really wanted to do. Meanwhile, here comes an opportunity to kind of have some financial security, but you got to give up the thing that you really love. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just getting ready to do it because I realized I took the weekend and I went, all right, what do I have? What do I have in front of me? Well, I have a job. That's more than some of my friends have. So I'm already in the plus category here. It's not what I'm really good at. But honestly, I haven't really applied myself. Maybe if I apply myself, I could be good at it. And it's kind of creative. I mean, it's writing. It's for an ad agency, but it's writing. So maybe I can take all of these things and put it together and build a life and do my performance fixes on the side. I'll join a band or I'll, you know, do something. I'll continue to do my equity showcase productions out in the depths of Brooklyn. And, uh, and, and maybe I can build all of those things into a life and choose to be happy because what I've been doing, beating my head against a wall, trying to make my living or get paid as a performer, this is not making me happy. And to a large extent, happiness is a choice. So I'm going to take these things and I'm going to choose to be happy. I'm going to, I'm going to take the money. So I went in the next week getting ready to tell my boss this. And somebody said, hey, have you seen Backstage this week? And I said, I haven't read Backstage in months. Why? <laughs> they said, well, they're having an open call for Sesame Muppeteers. I went, really? This was in 1999. And I went, oh, 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 okay. So I explained to my boss, hey, um, can, I, can I put that decision on hold? Because here's why. Here's what's happening. I didn't tell him the whole story, which of course was that, you know, that a week-long audition meant that you got cut after each day and there was no actual work at the end of it. And it was just sort of to see who was out there. I didn't tell him that part. I just said, oh, no, it's no. an audition for this, you know, yeah, thing. big thing. Mm, big thing. Yeah. So he said, oh, okay, you know, he said, he said, believe me, my boss doesn't want to have to pay you any more money any sooner than he has to. You can sit on this decision for as long as you want. I said, okay, great, fine. Yeah. So after work hours, while the cleaning crew is coming through, I'm in the back room with my little camera and trying to get my, my chops back up in shape, practicing my monitor skills and everything. And I go and I do uh, the first day of auditions. I get kept for Monday. I get kept for Tuesday. On Wednesday, uh, they say, we, we want you to stay. And I'm like, ah, oh, but my, my, my boss told me I couldn't have the full week. I had to, I had a deadline on Friday. And so I have to go back to the office tomorrow for Thursday to finish writing. And he went, Oh, okay. Bye. And that was that. Yeah. So the next day I'm back at the office and I'm typing furiously and I'm like, (laughs) very unhappy. Um, And Uh then uh, the following week, Tim Legas calls me and says, don't be surprised if you get a call from Kathy Mullen. And I'm like, Kathy Mullen, Kira, from the Dark Crystal, Kathy mm-hmm. Mullen. Why, why is she going to call me? Well, because they're having auditions for uh, this new show they're working on called Between the Lions. And she said, Tim, I feel like I've seen everybody. Who haven't I seen? And Tim said, well, have you seen Jen Barnhart? And Kathy said, who's that? And he said, well, she's, she's this girl I went to college with. And you need to meet this girl for her voice alone because no one on the planet sounds like her. And she said, okay, well, bring her in. So I went in and I auditioned for that. And that audition was an hour long because I walked in there with my little wow. sides taped up and prepared and ready to go. And it was at Chris Surf's house. <laughs> and I walk in and first of all, I'm taking in that scene. And then mm-hmm. there is Kathy. And Tim was there to be my scene partner, which was great. So I had my scenes and she said, okay. So I did the first, I did the first scene as Cleo, the mama lioness. And she said, okay, throw out the scripts. Um, In this next bit, you're actually playing his little sister. You want him to read you a bedtime story. He doesn't want to do it. You have to convince him, go. 
So improv exercise with a puppet. Okay, great, fine. Uh, so we do that little singlet. She goes, okay, great, sing something. So I sing something. She's, okay, great. Bring those scripts back. Where's the script back? So it really was an hour of just trying different things. and Almost and a workshop audition. It really you know? was. Yeah. A little bit for the character, a little bit for you, a little bit kind of seeing what you can do. It was amazing. I ran. Because most auditions are just, you know, if you're lucky, you get through <laughs> your monologue or whatever prepared piece and then thank you. And then bye-bye. But, but no, to this... be there an hour is amazing. With Kathy Mullen directing me and guiding me, I was like, ah, ah, "This is incredible!" So I raced to the phone, and I was on my way back to the office. But I, I called my mom, and I, I said, I, "I, I, just learned more in the past hour than I did in the three months that I shot in Minneapolis." I mean, this was this was incredible, and I was so excited and so high. And I said, "I know everybody I'm up against. I know their resumes. I know their strengths. I know what this is. I know the reality of the situation. If I'm lucky, they'll bring me into right hand or background, maybe. But this was uh, it was one of the best auditions I've ever had. So I was I was completely high on that. And then by the time I got back to the office, that adrenaline had worn off, and everyone at the office had said, "How to go?" <laughs> and I went, "Wow, I am never this performer, but." I can't talk about this because I want this one so badly that I'm going to be shattered when I don't get it. So do me a favor and ask me again in a couple of weeks and then I'll tell you all about it. I just went back to work. Hmm. And then a week after that, I get a voicemail from Tim saying, oh, sure, fine. She gets the gig and doesn't even call the friend to thank him for hooking her up with the audition <laughs> in the first place. Congratulations, <laughs> sweetie. Click. Oh, and I called him back and I said, Tim, this is either the meanest practical joke you've ever played on me or you know something I don't. Call me back. And he didn't. He didn't, he didn't call, call you? He did not call me back, no. Mm-mm. Do you think he thought, oh, uh, maybe I've said something too soon. She doesn't know. Yeah. But I, I, messed up. I think that's what he did. Because <laughs> <laughs> the next day I got a call oh. from Kathy saying, okay, so we're going to start Monday and we're going to start. That was her, that was her, um, <laughs> lead off she said we're gonna start monday (laughs) well she said she said uh we'd like see this this was the other unprecedented thing i have never had this before i've never had this since kathy assembled an ensemble of puppeteers she didn't say you're cleo she said we'd like you to be part of the ensemble and we start monday because they took a week and change of giving us script bits and pairing us off in different combinations trying different relationships different everythings it was amazing and then at the end of that week, all of us went out to dinner and sat and wait, waited while they made their casting decisions. So, so they had the people they wanted to use. They just didn't know. Ex- maybe, maybe they had some idea they what they wanted idea. to where they put you. But they wanted to see how you played off each other in different combinations. Yeah. And wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really great. And no other show I've ever been on has had the luxury of here's a week of rehearsal for us to troubleshoot and figure this out. I think yeah. honestly, too, I, I think part of it might have been that the puppets were still being finished <laughs> a little bit, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Well, you know what? It, yeah, it was a good, be- it was beneficial to you guys probably as an ensemble and to Kathy and to try to figure out who's best for these yeah. parts. But clearly, no one could be better at Cleo than you. Oh, thank you. I mean, she is the mama lion. She's very grounded. She's got a just a, a beautiful way about her. And it very much is you. I think it's very much who you are, Jen. Thank you, Matt. She's... Yeah. 
She's a character that means so much to me. I remembered even then thinking, I, I am very fortunate to come from a long line of incredible mothers. Hmm. My mother was incredible. Her mother was incredible. And so I wanted to take the best parts of them and put it into this character that would be the best me if I could be that mom. So that means the world to me. Thank you, Matt. And that show in general is just fantastic. And you've got Peter Lentz on it, Anthony Asbury and Kathy and Tim and later Pam Sierra was on it. And I mean, and Tyler everybody Bunch worked was on, on it. it. Tyler Jim Bunch Krupa. was on it. Yeah, a, a great ensemble of people that got to come in and, and create that show. Yeah. I loved every detail of it. It was so rich and detailed. What a great set to play on. And it was raised. <laughs> it yes. was a raised set. We all got to stand. It was so nice. <laughs> That's another thing that hasn't ever really happened much since. Um, no. Consistently. But uh, yeah, it was, God, it was such a good show. And the, the music was so good. The writing was so good. What's funny is a couple of, a couple of incidental things when i left the audition apparently tim turned to kathy and said so which thing and i didn't find this out until much after and kathy said she's green she is green but <laughs> she's a good actor and i think we can maybe work with that you say she's a quick study well we have two episodes to shoot as a pilot and then we're going to take the summer to refine it and if i like what i see I, i'll keep her and if not i'll have the rest of the summer to recast so she was though speaking of your your puppetry, I guess. But, you know, you have a bunch of different things as a Muppet performer that you are trying to do. And let's just divide it into two kind of things. There's the technical side and then there's the the acting side, mm -hmm. right? And you have to try to get to a point where those things are kind of equal. I mean, that's the goal anyway, is to try to be those things are kind of on par. And sometimes, you know, the technical is really great, but the characters just aren't they're just not there yet. Or yeah. sometimes, you know, there's great characters, but the puppetry isn't quite there yet. And it takes a long time to learn this skill to try to get your buckets on each side of that uh, filled. You yeah. know, we're always kind of, it's always kind of balancing the buckets and you're always learning maybe a new technical skill or maybe something else comes up that you learn that's, you know, you can use in your acting arsenal. Yeah. Don't you think? Abso absolutely. Uh, and, it, and it's great to feel like, hopefully, <laughs> ideally, when you're presented with a new character, you feel like there's at least one thing where you're like, okay, I, I can lean into this because this is home base and I'm comfortable with this part. And then now I got to work on these other things to, to bring them up to, to, to equilibrium. It's what made my first day on Sesame... I mean, because I was like, okay, I sort of know what I want to do with Grandma Snuffy. But here I am being presented with a kind of puppet that I have never been in before. So there's that whole challenge of, and, and, and every puppet, every puppet is its own unique musical instrument. And you have to learn how to make that one sing. And it takes a while before, if, if to use a musical metaphor, you have to work on the scales and you have to do all of those things. And, and you can play the notes of a piece and you can play them technically very well, but it takes a long time for you to feel like you could channel an emotion or a feeling or really be performing instead of just playing the notes. And, yeah. and I think and the, the same, same goes for puppetry. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of mentioned it there, and maybe we may as well go there now. Sesame Street. Your first day on Sesame Street, you were playing... Grandma's Nuffleupagus. Well, what's, <laughs> what's funny, backing up from uh. that, it, it, there was, it, the, the journey for me from Sesame, from that first workshop where I had to go back to the office... It was like, oh, yeah, sorry, you know. And then fast forward a few years and Between the Lions is doing well and we're in our second season and we're doing performances at the White House and we're doing the Easter egg roll and stuff like that. And this was back in the days when if Sesame would 
contact you for a project, they would say, hey, we'd love to have you come for a day on Cinderelmo. Uh, We're looking at shooting during this week. We're only probably going to use you for one, but we need you to be available for all five days. Can you do that? And I said, well, I'm fine for Tuesday through Friday, but on Monday, I'm going to be at the White House doing my own character from this other PBS show. So Mm -hmm. if you can work with that, great. But if you can't, you can't. Okay, sorry. Bye. So then uh, from that to Bear in the Big Blue House, to the Book of Pooh, to and finally, all of a sudden, Sesame went, who is this person? <laughs> who is, maybe we should well, have her here. How did you get the role of Grandma Snuffy? They called and asked me. I didn't even audition for it. They just said, hey, we want you to come and do a day on Sesame. We've got this episode. By the way, <laughs> By the we're going to be inside a Snuffleupagus. Yeah. I think it was because I'm a tall, strong lass, maybe. I don't and know. You, you knew Marty, right? I knew Marty, yes. I, by that point, I knew Marty. Marty from Between the Lions. And so, he, he, act- I mean, he actually came and, played, he came and played Cleo's dad in an episode, which was very oh. sweet. It was so <laughs> cute. I, really I'll sweet. bet he recommended you. Yeah. 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 That, he I've never asked him, and I should. That is a logical assumption yeah. that never occurred to me. Isn't and that if funny? that's... True, we scooped it right here. Woohoo! Thanks, Marty! <laughs> <laughs> okay, now hold on, Jen, and everybody out there. We're going to talk all about Sesame Street next, but before that, we're going to ask a puppeteer about not puppets. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. On today's installment of Ask a Puppeteer about not puppets, we're talking with Tyler Bunch. So, Tyler, here's your question about not puppets. Did you have a high school crush? I did. Can you tell me anything about the high school crush? Um, what's funny is that not only did I have the high school crush, I actually literally had the door open. She she was a year older than me and she was like one of the, you know, one of the head cheerleaders and like the door was open, which gave me a ride one day in her car, and and I and and I can tell now there were the flirty eyes and all oh, this might be and oh this could be something, and getting out of her vintage automobile, I broke the handle off of oh. the car. <laughs> it was in my hand. I broke her car. Oh no! And she's a sweet person, and I'm sure that it, she could have forgiven me for that. But uh-huh. then my efforts at trying to figure out how to make up for this horrible thing that uh. I'd done. It just became this snowballing series of horrible, <laughs> horrible adolescence. It oh, no. sucked. Oh, I, yeah, it was ruined. <laughs> I ruined it. Oh, man. Ask the puppeteer about puppets. We are back with Jennifer Barnhart, and we are up to Sesame Street. So you got you play you did that one day on that Sesame day. Street. Yeah, there there was a period of time where I think the best I did I, I spent well I spent twelve or thirteen years as a day player mm-hmm. and came for a day. There were some seasons that I didn't do anything. There was one season where I think I was there for uh, maybe seven or eight shooting days, which was great. But every day I worked on Sesame, I walked out of there going, "Well, that was really nice. That will probably never happen again." Um, yeah. But that that one season that it turned into a week, I was like. Ooh, Maybe there's, a, maybe there's something happening from here. And then there was a very dry spell. Well, and some of this happens because, um, generally speaking, we Sesame chooses to focus on a certain core group of characters. It's usually Elmo, Abby, Rosita, you know, Grover, Cookie Monster, Big Bird, Oscar, 
Am I forgetting anybody? I mean, that's usually the, the group. <laughs> those, are the, those are the big ones, yes, for sure. And, and then it, every once in a while, they'll write other sh- shows for Telly or Baby Bear or even Zoe or, you know, you name it. The, you know, that's kind of how the model has been for a while. So those day player roles kind of come and go. And sometimes there are yeah, a lot of them so. and sometimes there are none of them. So it and makes this, sense this, that you this might... This time was also right before Abby Kadabi. I remembered... Mm being, I think, the first person to audition in that process because it was at a casting office. And my agent got a call saying, so there's this character that's coming up for Sesame that they're doing this nationwide search for. And I I said, well, describe the character to me. And my agent described it to me and I went, I just don't understand why they're not wrapping a bow on it and handing it to Leslie Carrara Rudolph because that is who she is as a person in life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Leslie is a magical fairy being. And uh-huh. and my agent said, I don't know, I don't know her. And I said, Well, trust me, I mean, it's great that they're going through this process, but usually they just audition people who know how to do this already. But okay. I mean, right. I guess. So I do vaguely remember this that there was oh, a big yeah. casting call out for that. <laughs> so I showed up. I showed up and I was the first appointment on the first day. I have my little scripts taped up. I walk into the room, I see there's giant cue cards at the opposite end of the room, and I went. Oh, that's very cute. That's really not going to be helpful. I'm, you know what? I've, I've marked these. I'm just going to leave these taped up to the script here. Anybody got some tape? Great. Wow, wow, wow. There's a significant delay. Delay on this monitor. Okay, well, oh, I boy. guess we can work with that. All right, so I'm just going to make my entrance. No, please don't follow me. Why are you having the camera follow me? No, just if, you just if you just step away from the camera, I'll then come in. I'll make an entrance and I'll play the shot for you. You're not going to... Okay, great. So I did this whole thing oh, and I walked no. out and I saw Cheryl Blaylock and I went, oh, Cheryl. And then I looked around and I looked at all the other women who were sitting there and I went, have any of you done puppets before? And they all went, no. And I went, good luck. (laughs) I said, Cheryl, there's a delay on the monitor and they don't know what lock the shot means. Good luck. (laughs) So so anyway, uh, around that time, Abby came onto the scene and and, and was the new character that was getting a lot of focus. So Mm -hmm. naturally, there was not as much room for other performers at the table because there was a new character that was being developed and nurtured and, and fostered. Right. And and I I love I love that after casting this nationwide search that it went to Leslie and that she won the job by being the best at the job <laughs> that she yes. auditioned for it fair and square and legitimately and got it and it's like well yes thank you well, it makes sense that's Leslie they that's could have her, saved themselves thousands of dollars by not right. having to go through that process and That's narrowing true. the field of people auditioning for it. But it's it's great that it was, you know, that it was that kind of thing. Now, though, you are one of the core Sesame Street Muppet performers. Yes, I am. You know, Thanks to Zoe. Uh, one of 14 on our show. And you play Zoe, of course. And we'll come back to her in a second. But you also play Gladys. Yes, the cow, yes, I originally do. Originally played by Richard Hunt. Ugh. And uh, Mama Bear and Frankie the Worm, who's had a had oh, a few gosh. good episodes. Remember Frankie the Worm? And, of I course, do. Granny Bird. I know. Big Bird's Granny Bird. And, and Maggie Kadabi. Uh, oh, I'm, that's right. Maggie Kadabi. I knew Abby I'm going to miss. mom. <laughs> well, see, now that makes sense to me. That see? really makes sense. Uh, but you also, Jennifer, you play a human character on the show. Not a puppet on your hand for this one. You play Charlie's mom. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yes. So uh, getting to play Charlie's mom, um, that was pretty wild. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Violet Tinarello, the young actress who plays Charlie, she and I were paired together uh, just to be basically background extras for 
um, one of the first HBO Sesame specials. I think it was Follow That Wand. Um, and we spent an entire afternoon just hanging out in the park. And Carolyn Volpe, who had cast her and had paired me with her to play her mom, uh, she, she looked at us and she said, boy, you, you two really kind of look like you could be mother and daughter. That's a, that's a pretty good bit of casting. And, uh, and she was right. Um, and Violet and I spent the afternoon together and just hit it off. We really, really had a great time and bonded. And I ended up staying in touch with Violet and her family uh, in the years that followed that. And then fast forward a couple of years, and they were looking for a new human child to be part of a family that was moving to Sesame Street. And Violet had so many rounds of auditions that she went through. She went through like three or four different rounds. And uh, actually, what was so great is I was at the Sesame offices shooting a small thing where I was playing Zoe. And because Violet is herself a dancer, and Zoe was one of her favorite characters, so... Violet came in to just sort of say hi and, and see everything. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, get on camera. And and I think she thought maybe it was another round of a callback kind of thing because they'd said, oh, there's one more step you have to go through. And so uh, they rolled tape. And on camera, Zoe got to tell Violet that she had gotten the part as Charlie. Yeah, I remember that. wonderful. Yeah. And then a few months later, uh, they ended up deciding that, hey, it worked really well the first time. Let's just have Jen be cast as Charlie's mom, as, as Violet's mom in this incarnation as well. So uh, the fact that Violet got cast happened to be a, a very fortuitous thing for me as well and for the show at large because she's just an incredible young actress. Yeah. She really, really is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and one of the challenges of being a human performer on Sesame, I have come to find out, is that being a puppeteer, I'm used to looking at the monitor and helping to compose the shot and being up there and having to worry about my hair and my makeup. I mean, granted, there are people who, who take care of those things <laughs> yeah, for me. Right. But all of a sudden, I'm, I'm worrying about, am I blocking a puppet's shadow? Am I, how am I standing? Uh, am, am I in the frame? Am I out of the frame? And feeling a little adrift, uh, not being able to see a monitor that was that was kind of challenging too so oh, it's really cool and um you've also done all these other roles that we've talked about just kind of the day players that kind of come into our show every once in a while are there any of those characters oh, that you were wow. like oh my gosh that was great i wish we could i could do more with that character oh that's interesting i enjoyed reduce the recycling fairy <laughs> she was fun uh-huh. uh <laughs> there was i was a ball <laughs> yep Crystal ball? Crystal was it crystal ball? ball? I was crystal yeah. ball. That was yep. very odd. Do you have a character that you, of all your characters, and it could be on any show, it doesn't have to be on Sesame, but any of your characters that's your favorite to perform? It's hard. It's impossible. Um, Cleo. I, I mean, she it, was my, think... it was my first, part of it is, you know, it's like your first love. She will always right. hold a special spot in my heart for being that character who propelled me into being able to leave <laughs> the the day job and open a whole new world of, of things for me. But I, I so loved performing that character for live audiences. We actually did mm. travel around a fair amount to promote the show and... I remember one time we were visiting a, we were, it was, it was a facility where kids were sort of in between things like their, maybe their family's home had burned down and their mom and dad mm. had to travel to try to find another job or try to find someplace. So this was, this was a place where they were housing kids who, 
whose parents couldn't be there for various reasons. Uh, in one instance, uh, some incarceration was involved, some rehabilitation in other senses. But here were these kids who um, so loved the show and so loved what we did. And when we did the meet and greet afterwards, they clung to Cleo hmm. because she was a mom and they were yeah. missing their mom. And on another live show that I did with them, a, a little girl came over and asked if she could come home with me, that oh. she wanted she wanted to come home with Cleo. And Cleo had to say to her, oh, honey, thank you so much. And I would love that. But if my little girl cub Leona left me, I would be the saddest mommy ever. So your mommy needs you. And she said, but don't you need me? And I said, of course I do. But your mommy needs you more. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> just came right out of you. It just I mean, came, it that's... just came right out, and it was it was it was Cleo. That was one of those moments of it was Cleo mm-hmm. knowing what to say and saying the right thing because I Jen would not necessarily have known the right, right thing to say. And then it's amazing then t- what these characters do, isn't it? Yeah. And, and maybe that brings us to something here. You created Cleo, yeah. who she is really. I mean, she was written, but you really brought. A lot, as we do as performers, we bring a lot of who we are to these characters. You created Cleo, but you took over Zoe from Fran. Yeah. What do you think the differences are in creating a role from from nothing, essentially, and uh, and taking over from somebody? Wow. Well, creating a role is is it's such an open book and. What I love is that there usually is such a fair amount of dialogue. There's a lot of collaboration about it. And as you say, very much aspects of your personality end up coming through into the character and infusing the character and informing it. Kathy Mullen's original concept for Cleo was that she was a, an opera singer, retired, but an opera singer. And I said, whoa, uh, that's fun, but I don't have those pipes. And she said, oh, but you could sing opera badly. That would be funny. And I said, I, I could. Yes, it's true. And um, I remembered uh, going over to Paul Jacobs, who was the music director for the show, said, come come to the apartment. Uh, my wife, Sarah Durkee, and I write, write a lot of the songs for the show. I just want to get a sense of your key and where you live vocally. And I walked in and said to him what I say to every music director who ever asked me this question. And I said, well, listen, I have almost a three octave range. The bottom octave is entirely useless to me as a woman. Now, if you're willing to play with that... We can play with that. But, you know, that's sort of where I'm basically a tenor. I'm a tenor. Uh-huh. Um, so he was working on the key. He was like, oh, okay, yeah, you sort of do live a little deep. And, and I turned to go, and, and I, w- I, I was at their door. And I had my hand on the door, and I turned to Paul, and I said, I'd really love Cleo to do a torch song. And I left. And he tells me later that he and Sarah looked at each other, raced over to the piano, and in about an hour and a half wrote Shush, the first sort of smoky, jazzy number that Cleo ever sang on the show. And I was very glad that I'd thrown that in there. And again, yeah. having it be a jazz background with my jazz background made much more sense to me. So, yeah. so she became it's, it's, that. She, she became that and also a country singer, which was fun as well. <laughs> so it's, it's great that there's that... Um, synergy of all of these different things and all of these different elements and it's it's a, sometimes it's a little free fall sometimes you're given a character oh there was a fun character i did on lomax the hound of music where i played this little white kitty cat named delta and she required three puppeteers because she had individual eye mech so there was a left eye right eye both eyes and there wasn't a gang up control i had to tweak those at the same time. So that was on one paw 
and there was an ear mechanism. Then somebody else had the other paw. There was a, a tail I couldn't oh have done anything goodness. with. And we were all stuffed in a little chair, in a little couch. <laughs> but so, so you're working on these things. And remember how we were talking before about the, getting the character and the manipulation to be in the same ballpark, yes. <laughs> ideally? Yeah. Trying to figure out those individual IMAX. But the nice thing is because you're creating it it is it is a collaborative process and there's really nobody standing there to say oh you're doing that wrong when you're taking over a character that somebody else has created it's a difficult thing and a delicate balance to try to honor what has been established and also bring your own energy and your own qualities to it uh and and I still I still struggle with that. I feel like that is going to be a process that I will continue to learn from the longer I, I do her. And there's and, and, and there there are things there's there are many ways in which I feel oh, I, I'm I'm not I'm not doing it justice. I'm not I'm not living up to what Fran established. I I, I don't I cannot make my voice go that high. <laughs> you know, uh, just vocal architecture alone, but also you know some of the spirit of her and the character of her. It, it's it's it's. Um, I always feel a little lacking. And, and, well, and I, I don't, think I've, it makes sense. I think it's right for us to feel that way because we are not those people. Yeah. We are we are super critical of our work. Uh, and it will never be good enough for for us to just be like sit back and and relax. I think that keeps it keeps it fresh in a way, and it keeps us. We're always challenging ourselves. If we just kind of sit back and just go, yeah, whatever, then then the terrorists yeah. win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a good answer. Uh, you're you know you're you're a left-handed puppeteer, and there are not. A lot yeah. of left-handed puppeteers in this in in the television puppetry world, which are is funny any... because many of our core muppeteers are left-handed people. Yep. Yourself, I'm Pam, Marty. Yes, yeah, and Marty uh, what's, is what's... very ambidextrous, and I'm a little ambidextrous when we can kind of switch around left, right. But I'm a predominantly right-handed uh, Muppet performer. Uh, you are a left-handed person that is also a left-handed Muppet performer. Do you are you ambidextrous? No, I'm working on trying to get the right to be yeah, as fluent hard. as the left, <laughs> and it's very hard. And from a Muppeteering standpoint, the great thing is that all of you, for whom uh, who are truly ambidextrous, I mean, you can you can sign autographs while keeping your puppet alive. Yeah. If if somebody wants an autograph of my character, I'm like. <laughs> I'll I'll do it behind the scenes and then I'll send it out to you because this is bad, you know. Yeah. But well, are there any particular Zoe, challenges? Any challenges you've got, like Granny Bird? Yes. Because of how she is built <laughs> inside the head, I thought this must be a challenge because normally you get a puppet and you'll put it on and it's an, an AM character, or whether it's Zoe or whoever it is, and it's kind of the insides are kind of built for whichever hand, right? It doesn't matter whether you're left or right-handed. I would generally say generally. Speaking. Right, but yeah, Granny Bird's a little is, different. Well, the other the other trick, in a way, almost the harder trick with Granny Bird, isn't so much the left handed right handed thing in terms of okay, so to to make the eyes for for you when you have your head inside a bird head, it's your right pinky, right? That's correct. That that does the eye raising, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. etc. Cetera. For me, that trigger would be on my index finger, and frankly, 
I think I'd be okay with that because I feel like I have more control and strength in this finger than in my little finger. Yeah. The real problem lies in the fact that you, as a six foot two man, have a hand that is proportional to that. For a very tall Amazon woman such as myself, I have little baby tiny hands. I have I have what they call earth hands. Big fat palm, stubby little fingers. But even so, it's a small hand and small palm. So I can't even reach that trigger. Oh. I can't even reach it because yep. where, where it fits for you, I'm like, I, I can't. Yeah, trying to reach no- it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's a challenge. Yeah. But you do yeah, all right. You know, and, and it is, a, it's, again, it's another one of those processes. And she's not I, a puppet. Oh. You got to wear and it's just. Yes. And also just, what about, you know, in a scene, you're in a scene working with a bunch of right-handed performers. You're kind of odd man out. Odd man out. I absolutely am. Because we kind of fit, we fit together, you know, side by side usually. And then how do you work yourself into that equation? You can, you all can stack up with your bodies closer to camera and Mm -hmm. your arm above. And for me to get that close, I have to be on, my body then is, and my body gets in the way. The only time it has ever worked spectacularly in my favor was when we were doing a scene uh, for Between the Lions where Theo and Cleo had to dance through the library together. And originally, Peter said, oh, I'll just, we'll just, you know, Muppet Show ballroom it and I'll do both characters. And I said, Peter, have you put your hand inside Cleo? Because at rest, when there's no hand inside of her, her upper and lower lids are perfectly closed. So I had to be pulling a trigger constantly to keep her eyes open while I was lip syncing. And I learned how to work with it. But Peter, who is a brilliant manipulator, puts on Cleo and goes, I don't know how you do this. I can't. (laughs) I can't do this. She's just going to look like she's having a stroke while we're dancing. This isn't going to work. And I said, Peter, I think we can make this work. I said, put your right arm up. And he put his arm up with Theo. And I put my left arm up with Cleo. And I said, okay. And we were facing each other. I said, now dance with me. And I put his hand around my waist. I put my hand around his shoulder. And we were able to dance as people below the puppets. And so the puppets were just along for the ride. And it worked. And it worked. So it would have been the awkward if it were two right-handers trying, yes. to, trying to dance. There would have been some tripping happening, I think. Yeah. But, uh, no, that, but that's the only instance I can think of where it worked out splendidly. What's nice is that uh, everybody who directs me on a regular basis, such as yep. yourself, goes, and Jen, you're obviously over here on camera. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So that my body's out. But yes. you Camera left so that you can kind of lean right, in yes. and you can get in there and be in the most comfortable, be- well, in this job, the most, quote, comfortable position yes. that you can be in. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, shouldn't be discouraged anybody that's out there that is a left-handed puppeteer knowing that there oh, yes. are so many right-handed puppeteers, but there are some left-handed puppeteers and they're darn good. So Thank you. We'll, and we'll take it. Uh, I want to talk about Helpsters just for a second. Yes, please. So you played Jackie on Helpsters. Yes. It was another puppet in a long line of puppets that you wear. Talk about the difficulties slash pleasures of playing Jackie. So playing Jackie, um, uh, this this monster, walk-around monster character who's sort of a, a jack of all trades. She does a lot of different things, uh, hence the Jackie part. Um, mm-hmm. It's... Delightful playing a nonverbal character. I've never played a nonverbal character before, and that was very challenging because uh, the creator of the show had a, a very specific sort of 
one sound, one sound that he wanted to come out of her. And and I was a little afraid that it would have made me sound like Scooby-Doo. Uh, so we had to sort of back and forth a little bit about, and, and, and it, it took a while. This is what happens with, with a new show, with a new character, with everything. Mm-hmm. There are some hits and misses. There's along the way, you, you take a stab at something, you try it, and it doesn't really work. And the next time you fix it and you go, boy, I wish I could go back to that first episode and yeah. redo that whole thing. Uh, I don't know of any performer alive who doesn't feel that way the further and further you get into developing a character and over the length of a a series or a season or something like that. But she was very challenging in that the monitor inside her, it took the first half of the season for us to really troubleshoot her monitor issues because unlike Big Bird or unlike Hart, the other character, where there's, there's enough real estate in there for a performer to... Uh, look down and see a monitor in front of them. Yeah. Jackie was built much more like a mascot. Uh, so the head was very fitted to mine. Thankfully, I am not a claustrophobic person by nature, which is good. But even having said that, Jackie was... Uh, there were a couple times that I, I wanted to claw her face right off of me because I'd been in it for too long. It was not a a character that breathed very well. And it is difficult because everybody's kind of, they've got their puppets on and they're on the floor uh, and people that aren't in puppets or aren't inside a puppet, it's hard for them to always be aware. It, It, can take a toll. And sometimes, yeah, you just got to get out. Yeah, yeah. We were very lucky uh, to have the wrangler that we had, Setuan Hooks, mm-hmm. who had a lot of experience with walk-around characters. Uh, so he was the one constantly advocating and saying to the directors and the producers and the stage managers, we got to get her out. We got to get her out. Well done, Setuan. Uh, yeah. The, and thank you, Setuan. Andrea would be there for me, but she was also there for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we were just, a, we, sometimes we felt just like maybe we were one person shy especially in those early uh, episodes we would get extra help in as this mm-hmm. as the season went on um, yeah. but again that's the thing we're, we're all learning and and something that you know i know you know and uh, uh half of our jobs as puppeteers working with new producers and directors is educating them about how in order for us to do our job these these are things that that we have to be able to do, yeah. uh, and trying to communicate that in a way that isn't isn't stepping on anyone's toes and is you know it's right. it's a bit of a delicate and dance sometimes. It is, and you can talk about it ahead of shooting something until you're blue in the face and say mm-hmm. everything that you need to say, but until you're on the set and until everybody's there and until cameras are rolling and until somebody really sees it, that's yeah. when they go. Oh, yeah, we got to get her out of there. Or, <laughs> whatever. you know, that's when they <laughs> exactly. kind of realize. Well, know. and the other thing, too, for me, too, and, and I think this is also true of any performer. I mean, I know that every second of production costs money, and I mm-hmm. don't want to be holding anybody up. Right. And because of now, Hart was configured in such a way that for Ingrid, pants on the performer to slip out was it, it became a very fast very quick thing it was at least it, for me to get out and then get back into jackie would have been a 10 minute break yeah. it just it took it took that many people it took five people to make that character 
fit on me. There was Bob Sacchetti dealing with audio. There was Barbara dealing with the monitors and Osa as well. And what always tickled me was watching both Osa and Barbara have to put the head on and try and make sure the feed was working. and and I They're usually it on had, them? yes, I have a picture somewhere that's on my great. phone of Barbara wearing that head. Oh, that's <laughs> just hilarious. trying to figure it out. That's great. Oh, it's so cute. But um, they were all so, there for yeah. you. Yeah, they were there for me. Absolutely. Well, I hope you get to do more. And Andrea Detweiler. Oh Andrea yeah, Detweiler. Andrea Detweiler. She was incredible. Uh, I hope you get to do more helpsters. Thank this you. Fun show. I do too. All right, Jen, uh, we're we're almost at the end now, but I have some rapid fire questions for you. I'm going to just like give you a bunch I'll of questions and then yeah, you give it like whatever's at the top of your head. There are no wrong answers. There are okay. so many wrong answers. <laughs> no, there are no wrong. Okay, here we go. All right, are you ready? So. Here we go. What is the hardest part about being a puppeteer? Uh, having to teach everybody why you have special needs. <laughs> <laughs> What's the easiest part about being a puppeteer? Getting to get away with saying anything. Get away with murder with a puppet on your hand. <laughs> what is your biggest strength as a puppeteer or performer? Oh, uh, I think my biggest strength is providing a grounded sense to the ensemble. I like to be a shoulder people feel they can lean on. It's just a, a, a somewhat maternal-ish energy. Love that. That's a great one. What's your biggest weakness? Oh, um, being riddled with self-doubt and, mm. and, and feeling like I need validation um, and, and not wanting to seek it, but desperately needing it at the same time. Yeah, welcome to the club. Uh, (laughs) What is one of your favorite things about being a Sesame Street Muppet performer? Oh, wow. One of the best things about being a Sesame Street Muppet performer, first of all, just being able to say that, uh, but also the the way a kid's face lights up, the way an adult's Mm. face lights up. uh, I, I made Will Wheaton cry with Zoe. I didn't mean to, but he, I, I, he was there on the set and, and we just had a moment. And, and it's, so, so being able to make that straight to the heart connection with a grown up or a child, that's that was great. not very succinct. No, but. that's great. No. Uh, if you weren't a performer or a puppeteer, what would be your career? Ooh, um, man, um, massage therapist, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, Jerry Nelson said to me once, Sesame Street is great, but always have something that is your own that you create. So, Jen, yeah. what is that for you? Uh, jewelry making. I I do, and it's funny because it's been years since I've done it. You remember, I used mm-hmm. to actually bring my little yeah. trunk full of stuff with me um, and and have little trunk shows in, in whatever dressing room I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love doing beading, and I find it very therapeutic, very peaceful, very relaxing. I have not done it in a long time, uh, but I am trying to find ways to make time to incorporate it back into my life. Yeah, well, so yeah. Maybe uh, maybe just talking about it now might inspire you to do that. Yeah. Jennifer Barnhart, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Matt Vogel, thank you for this time. It was really, really fun. We never really get the no, chance to ever. This is the longest conversation yep. I've ever had with you. That's right. This is kind of amazing. I know. So it's been fun. I'm grateful for that. It's me been... too. Thank you. Thank you. 
Ah, it was so great talking with Jen. That is Below the Frame. Don't forget to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our show today was produced by me, Matt Vogel. Our theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by the Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast artwork was created by Dave Holteen at DaveHolteenDesign.com. The a word from our sponsor players today for bold characters were Haley Jenkins, Austin Costello, Kathy Kim, Tao Bennett, Spencer Lott, Chris Thomas Hayes, Megan Pipus, and Martin P. Robinson. Thanks, guys. And thanks to Jennifer Barnhart, Tyler Bunch, and my son Jack for being a part of this episode. Oh, and thanks to you, the fans, for listening. I'm Matt Vogel. We'll see you next time when we go below the frame. Bye-bye. Go, go.